Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith, and today our topic is competition and its role in the life of musicians and musician world in general. And so we're going to talk about that. What is competition? Why do we have it? Is it a necessary evil or is it an opportunity to expand our horizons in the world of music? Or is it toxic and something that we should just get rid of altogether and has no place in an artistic medium such as music? We're going to discuss all of that. And I cannot think of a better person to have this discussion with than my guest today, Dr. Brandon Bascom. Now, Brandon and I go way back. We were both piano performance majors at Brigham Young University a long time ago. And since then, he's had a very illustrious and wonderful career in music and in performing and teaching piano. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, After BYU, Brandon completed his Master of Music degree in piano performance at the Manhattan School of Music in New York City. He then went on to earn another Master of Music degree in piano performance and pedagogy from the University of Michigan and his Doctor of Musical Arts degree from the University of Iowa, where he was a recipient of the T. Ann Cleary International Dissertation Research Fellowship and an Outstanding Teaching Assistant Award. He has won multiple competition and festival awards over his distinguished career and is now serving as a professor of piano at Fresno City College. So, Dr. Brandon Bascom, welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to see you again. It's been a long time. It's been a while. We have been uh, connected through social media, so I've been kind of seeing, you know, what you've been doing with your wonderful career and your fantastic students. And I am just so thrilled to have you here talking with me about competitions. And as we start this, the whole reason that I invited you here is this summer I was watching the Clyburn competition. Did you get to watch that at all? I watched a little bit of it, yeah. Yeah, it was so fun. They had not only the competition, which was outstanding, they had fantastic musicians, fantastic pianists from all over the world playing, but they really, they just framed it in a really fun way. It was almost like the Olympics, right? They had commentators, they had Anderson and Rowe piano duo interview the performers. And the one thing that I loved about it was that they actually spent time talking about the events and what the listener should be watching for these events. And it made the competition so much fun. It made it seem like almost a sports event to the fact that my 10-year-old son actually had fun watching a piano competition. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it was just great. What did you what did you think of the competition when you were watching it? I think that I probably didn't watch as much of that one as I did the um the Chopin competition. Oh yeah. And uh it was interesting to see the um the interaction with with fans online on YouTube, but that that's a double edged sword. So sometimes you have the greatest, most wholesome, encouraging comments, and <laughs> right. it was very divisive at times. But it was it was an audience from all over the world while watching live on YouTube. So that was pretty pretty neat to see. And there was a hometown kid here from Fresno, uh, Talon Smith, who competed. So it was fun to see our local local talent representing in Poland. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And I think just competition of that caliber is so fun and it's just something really to look forward to. But I wanted to talk about competition kind of on the beginner, more of the beginner levels as people are working up towards that really high level. Um, Sure. And I remember at BYU, our days way back when, I guess not, we're not that old, so not that far (laughs) long ago, but I remember 
watching you in all of these performances and these competitions, and you really seem to thrive in that competitive environment. And I see that when you're looking at your biography, you soloed first soloed with a symphony at age eight, and you had won multiple competitions even before getting to music school. And so I was wondering, what are some of the benefits that you have found starting with competitions at such a young age as you have gone throughout your career? Yeah, I kind of got into music from sibling competition. (laughs) You know, I was jealous that my sister got lessons and I didn't. And I asked my mom, who was pregnant with child number three, how come I never, ever get piano lessons? (laughs) She said, after I have the baby, I'll see what I can do. So I started piano at age three. Yeah, I definitely took from teachers who were driven by competitions. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes the questions are asked, are the, quote, best teachers the best because they really teach the best and have all the competition winners? Or do all the competition winners take from these teachers? Mm. Do the competition winner teachers teach what students really need to know? Or do they just teach to the competition? Um, Right. To make a a pretty well-known analogy, there are shepherds and sheep herders. And shepherds care about the sheep and sheep herders care about the fleece. And unfortunately, that's all too often the case in the music world, right? Um, you know, some teachers just care about students representing their studio or right. making them look good. And, you know, it, it all comes down to, to attitude. I'll talk about that a little bit. At one point, my sister and I, would we would be in the same competition age category. Oh, wow. And I didn't learn this until years later, but she did not enter that year because she didn't want to be beat by her little brother. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a negative side. There's there's a positive side. You know, there are things competitions can do, um, can help you be motivated to get ready for something. Uh, competitions are nice because you can be exposed to new repertoire that you've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've seen a lot of the dark side, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> a couple things that I want to say about that. There, there's been some things that I've read and seen since my youth that have been therapeutic and have helped helped me deal with the childhood competition scene. One is a book called With Your Own Two Hands. It's by oh. Seymour Bernstein. If you don't know Seymour Bernstein, you need to know Seymour. He is great. Uh, there's a great documentary on his life as a concert pianist right now on Tubi, which you can view for free. Mm-hmm. Seymour, uh, came to the MTNA competition a few years ago in San Antonio and presented there. And he's just a great, great human being. In the opening of his book, he said, I once had a gifted teen-aged pupil who would argue no matter what I suggested, sensing that her defiance stemmed from guilt at not fulfilling her assignments, I patiently tolerated her insolence best to motivate her to practice. But at one point during a particularly quarrelsome lesson, I decided that matters had gone too far and that she needed a firm appraisal of her behavior. When I pointed out that her hostility really reflected a lack of discipline at the piano, she glowered at me with her customary obstinacy and exclaimed, I didn't come here to be psychoanalyzed. You're just supposed to give me piano lessons. (laughs) And what makes you think, I replied, that I'm interested only in giving you piano lessons? Do you think for one moment that I would separate you, the person, from your musical talent? 
A teacher, as I see it, ought to influence qualities of humanity in his pupils. And as far as you are concerned, I intend to achieve this by developing your pianistic skills. He goes on to say, to think that I could be interested in her as a person, apart from her talent, stunned her into silence. It was a turning point not only in her life, but in mine as well. It was the first time that I articulated to a pupil what I had previously only sensed, that practicing can influence the person as well as the musician. When my pupil recognized that I cared as much about her as I did about her musical progress, her attitude changed noticeably. Her lessons became models of preparation during which we both enjoyed a constant exchange of ideas and feelings. Gradually, we built a relationship based on mutual trust and affection. So I like this story because it, it shows that Seymour was a, is a shepherd, not a sheep herder, right? He didn't care yeah. about her talent. It reminds me of a, a life-changing talk that was given by Brian Chung. He's the former vice president of Kauai Pianos, and he gave a talk on being a, a life shaper or an artist maker teacher. Which, which kind of a lens do you view your teaching through? And he talks about that you can be both, mm -hmm. but he, the point that he makes is being an artist maker teacher isn't really going to change the music world that much. And that some stu students really need a life shaper mm. or a life shaper in addition to an artist maker. Mm, mm -hmm. And this story also reminds me of a teacher that I had for a short period of time, Gary Amano, who taught at Utah State. He recently passed away. But his quote was, talent is cheap. You know, you can find plenty of people on the street corner of New York City that can play the piano and are talented, but it's, it's the kid that will really apply themselves. Uh, it reminds me of another quote, one of my teachers at the Manhattan School of Music, Dr. Carol Aker, who has her own podcast, I think, from the green room, I believe it's called. Hmm. She said, the talented student will survive. It's just a matter of how much residual work will need to be done. Wow. Some little thoughts there about, about the types of teachers there are. and Yeah. Well, I can kind of guess probably which of those, a shepherd or a sheep herder, you are as a teacher, but why don't you explain what kind of a teacher do you consider yourself? Well, and, and I like the Brian Chung verbiage, you know, the life shaper or artist maker. I try to be both so individually based. Like, right. you know, I have students whose parent writes everything I say down in a notebook in addition yeah. to the notebook I'm writing in, records the lessons, helps the student practice, and I've got parents who drop the kid off, go do their Target or Trader Joe's run and come back 45 minutes later, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm a different type of teacher for a different type of student and, and trying to sense what kind of a teacher do I need to be for this individual student, I think is part of the fun of teaching. Yeah, absolutely it is. So you were saying that you had to unpack some of the things from this child competition. You want to go a little bit more into that? What do you mean? Sure, sure. I think there are different attitudes about competitions and some attitudes can be dangerous. Um, okay. There's another book I brought, uh, author Alfie Cohn. He wrote a book called No Contest, The Case Against Competition. Mm. And in this book, he describes structural competition and intentional competition. And he says the former refers to a situation, the latter to an attitude. Mm. Whereas structural competition has to do with the win-lose framework, which is external, intentional competition is internal. It concerns the desire or the part of an individual to be number one. He goes on to say, 
To say that an activity is structurally competitive is to say that it is characterized by what I will call mutually exclusive goal attainment, MEGA for short. This means very simply that my success requires your failure. Our fates are negatively linked. If one of us must lose exactly as much as the other wins, as in poker, then we are talking about a zero-sum game. But in any mega arrangement, two or more individuals are trying to achieve a goal that cannot be achieved by all of them. This is the essence of competition. He says, structural competitions vary in how many winners there can be. He says, not everyone who applies for admission to a given college will be accepted, but my acceptance does not necessarily preclude yours, although it will make it somewhat less likely. On the other hand, only one woman in a bathing suit will be crowned Miss America each year, and if Miss Montana wins, Miss New Jersey cannot. In both of these competitions, notice that winning is the result of someone's subjective judgment. In other cases, such as arm wrestling, pre-established and reasonably straightforward criteria determine who wins. So I like to tell my students all the time, uh, it comes down to what the judge had for breakfast and where the moon is in the orbit. <laughs> there's, there's so much subjectivity in competition. And so that attitude is really, really important. Um, Cohn goes on to say, beauty contests and college admissions also share another feature. Neither requires any direct interaction among the contestants. The success of one simply rules out or reduces the chances for, of, for success of another. There's a stronger version of structural competition in which one contestant must make the others fail in order to succeed himself. War is one example. Tennis is another. Two tennis players actively work at defeating each other. Yeah. So we don't see that as much in music, right? We, we're not actively trying to defeat each other, but you do see ugliness in competitions. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one teacher complains to the competition organizer and has their students removed from the upright piano room and switched to the grand piano room or, right. you know, little snide marks, remarks are made to try to get into each other's heads or mm -hmm. changing your repertoire once you find out who the judges are because you know what repertoire they like or what repertoire they've awarded prizes to in the past. Right. It's when winning, no matter what the cost is, the attitude, I think, you've lost, everybody's lost. And for what? Does it really matter who won that competition back in 1986? <laughs> you know, mo most of these kids aren't going to go into music. Most of the Juilliard grads don't stay in music. Right. And uh, Cohn talks about intentional competition that is talking about the individual's competitiveness, his or her proclivity for beating others. This can take place in the absence of structural competition. As all of us have right. observed, he says, some may arrive at a party and be concerned to prove he is the most intelligent or attractive person in the room, even though no prizes are offered and no one else has given any thought to the matter. Yeah, you want to find your place in that pecking order. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The psychoanalyst Karen Horney described as neurotic someone who constantly measures himself against others, even in situations which do not call for it. And then he says, the reverse situation structural competition without intentional competition is also possible. You may be concerned simply to do the best you can without any special interest in being better than others, yet find yourself in a situation where this entails competing. Oh, that's the ultimate. That's, that's the attitude that I try to portray. But the challenge is 
that attitude not only has to belong to the teacher, has to belong to the parent, has to belong to the student. Right. But it is the healthiest way to compete, really. I think so. Yeah. Uh, one of the movies that was very therapeutic to me was this movie called Searching for Bobby Fisher. Oh, yes. That's a great one. Love that movie. Uh -huh. uh, it's about the chess prodigy Josh Waitskin and his teacher, Bruce Pendolfini. And there's a scene in there where Bruce, the teacher, says to Josh, you know, little kid, do you know what the word contempt means? It's to think of others as beneath you, to be unworthy of being in the same room with you. And Josh says, I don't feel that. And then Bruce says, well, you better start because if you don't think it's part of winning, you're wrong. You have mm. to have contempt for your components. You have to hate them. And Josh mm. says, but I don't. And then Bruce comes back with, they hate you. They hate you, Josh. And he says, I don't hate them. And then Bruce says, Bobby Fisher held the world in contempt. And Josh said, I'm not him. And then Bruce said, you're telling me. Oh, I so hate it. I hate that part of the movie. <laughs> it's like the worst part of the movie. But this was my world. I felt like I was these, these two chess prodigies that the movie shows and they're different paths. And one clearly is this kind of intentional competitor, even in and out of structural competitions. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was the world I grew up in. And un unfortunately, I was probably that in intentional competitor too often. Yeah. And not just focused on do the best you can. And, and I think part of the thing that kids don't understand is the subjectivity of it. Right. It really has to do with what the judge had for breakfast that morning. Like, you did your best and, and losing so hard and, and the fact that there can only be one winner, you know, the attitude is everything when it comes to the competitions to me. When you see a student come to you and they have that, what sort of strategies as a teacher do you give them or what sort of tools do you give them to kind of get out of that headspace? Well, it's hard. Um, so you're, you're, you're meaning like, like a student is that intentional competitor? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you just put them in the biggest competition you can. That'll humble <laughs> them really quick, right? <laughs> just knock them down? <laughs> no, I mean, that's probably the wrong answer there. <laughs> you know, it, you can always find someone that's better than you. And, yeah. and, you know, there's, there's times when it's like, look, all you can do is tip your hat that that person's obviously better than me. I'm never going to come close to that. And, and that's life and you have to accept it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you can really only do the best that you can catering to your strengths. Um, right. But, you know, it's easy from the experience I have to have those types of conversations with that student. I, don't, I really haven't had a student like that. I, I don't like the attitude that I'm better than someone. Right. And in the music world, that's not going to get you very far. No. <laughs> uh, there's so much collaboration that, that goes on, and the, and the music world is really quite small. <laughs> you know, anywhere you go in the world, you can find people that know the same people, and mm -hmm. that's not an attitude that I want to portray or have my students portray for sure. Right. Well, what about the flip side? Because sometimes that comparing and that competition – a student can come up shorter and then they see that they're not as good as someone else and that mm -hmm. can be paralyzing to them. And they think, sure. well, why do I even try? I'm not the best. What do you do with a right. student like that? Well, and, and, you know, I think, you know, you have to have enough good experiences that keep you going and, and you mm -hmm. have to have joy in it. And so competition can certainly kill the joy. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not the best. And, you know, I hate, I hate the attitude of uh, second place is first loser. Yeah. And, 
you know, if, if that's all you're in it for, why do it? Right. Yeah. Now you said growing up, it was a lot of sibling competition that, that really motivated you to play and to, to get really, really good. And now it sounds like you've kind of switched your attitude a little bit from that. What was the turning point for you? Well, you look at the Clyburn, right? There can only be one winner of the Clyburn. Mm-hmm. You look at the prize money, you know, something like $50,000 and they get their own CD and their own website and their own touring clothes and they're, they're booked on tour for the next two years. I mean, how many people can really be a concert pianist and only perform as for a living? You know, right. that's very few and far between. I mean, we could probably name 10 concert pianists that are doing it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but everyone else is, is doing something else. Um, and so finding what matters in life, right? Like, okay, I can't be Long Long. I can't be Yuja Wang. So what what can I do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and finding purpose in life with what the talent is that you do have and the opportunities that you have been given is kind of, I think, what's taken over in my life. You know, just like sports, there's a small window of how long you can really be competitive mm-hmm. and compete. You know, you get married and have kids. <laughs> Your practice hours decrease majorly, right? And <laughs> and the competitions aren't there anymore. There's, there's age limits on them. And mm-hmm. But how can I share the love of music that I've had with with someone else and, and, and maybe how can I share that with someone that didn't get that opportunity in mm-hmm. their life as a, as a child, you know, I teach at a community college and my students are all over the map. I get students that have never been able to afford lessons. I've got, I get students that have taken lessons all the while growing up. I've get students that are adults that are trying to fight off mental issues and Alzheimer's and want to stay engaged in something and everything in between. And then I have my own private studio. So I teach the same things all day long, but I have very widely differing audiences. And mm-hmm. what can I give this student with the background they're coming from and the goals that they have with the experience that I have? Yeah, that's beautiful. And you are teaching the student music, not teaching music. You, you know what I mean? Like there's a yeah. difference between teaching the person and then just teaching the music. That's beautiful. Sure. Yeah. 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 That's really beautiful. So knowing that and thinking that, do you think that competition in general is good for music, for the world of music? Yes and no. I mean, the the famous quote is Bartok, right? Bartok said competition is for horses, not for artists. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the whole subjectivity of it is, is very difficult. And, you know, like I said, with there are only so many spots to really make it as a touring, performing only concert pianist. Right. The other things to think about are, you know, we want art and culture in our lives and we want to have our lives enriched by this culture. And to say that only 10 people get to do it, you know, we want to have the local community orchestra. That's not going to be perfection, anything close to perfection. I mean, Mm -hmm. what did we miss so much when COVID was going on? Right. We missed going to live music. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the the big debate about recording, you know, how many splices are in that famous recording versus the live recording, the live music, you know. If we mm-hmm. want a perfect recording, we can go find it or go make it. Mm-hmm. But it's, oh, we want that personal live interaction with Christine Smith playing, you know. We want to hear her live. I mean, we can go hear Ashkenazi <laughs> anytime <laughs> online. But to get the the live experience, you know, that's 
that's something that enriches lives, right? I mean, a lot of my students at the college are taking music to enrich their lives. Yeah. Because they've never been able to afford it. And now for $46 a credit, they can afford it. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think that that's a big important part of our community and culture is having art and music to enrich our lives. And it doesn't matter, you know, how good or bad you are that just that you're doing it. Um, one of the quotes I wanted to share was from Kurt Vonnegut, who's an author. He said, go into the arts. I'm not kidding. The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way of making life more bearable. Mm. Practicing an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow, for heaven's sake. Sing in the shower, dance to the radio, tell stories, write a poem to a friend, even a lousy poem. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward. You will have created something. So I have that quote on my office door. It's a great quote. It's interesting. I like the way that you are thinking about music. I love that. It's very refreshing. I've had some guests in, that are kind of the opposite, that are a little bit more on the competitive side. And if we're going to stay relevant, if music is going to stay relevant, we need to be competitive. And I think that there is some truth to both of those things, just mm. with how I think just by nature, classical music is in competition for people's time and for people's uh, attention. Sure. And so we are competing with everybody else to try to stay relevant. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in that way, I think that these big competitions like the Chopin competition, the Clyburn competition, they're very important just in a cultural society because our society is just inherently so competitive in every aspect of it. Um, but I think that if we can realize that that is a part, it is a part of the music world, but if we can enrich our students in the direction that you are talking about and doing your best and loving music for the love of it, it is going to elevate the playing as well that will just kind of enrich the more competitive side. It reminds me of a story that Professor Kaplinsky, who teaches at Juilliard, uh -huh. told at an MTNA conference. And she said, Juilliard gets phone calls from parents the day the baby is born. <gasps> You're kidding. To put them on the list, the waiting list for the prep division of Juilliard. <laughs> She wow. Says, we don't need more concert pianists. We need more people in the concert hall. Yeah. And, you know, heaven <laughs> heaven forbid we ask the kid if they even want to play piano. You're already on the list. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it reminds me of another story at, you know, at, when I was at Michigan with a professor there, John Ellis, he said that, you know, he taught a student whose parent said, I didn't get piano lessons when I was your age because I was picking rice in a field. You were going to have piano lessons. <laughs> so here, you know, parent, maybe good intentions, wanting to provide opportunities for a student, but also wanting their, their child to fulfill their own lost mm -hmm. life goals, right? Kind of living through their child, yeah. Right. So did anybody ask the kid if they wanted <laughs> lessons? <laughs> but, you yeah. know, we do we do need people in concert halls. We do need people to support the arts. And, you know, we saw, we saw that with COVID, like 
the artists were hit hard, right? Like right. how can artists reinvent themselves and when people aren't going to go out to a concert or go to a live venue, how can you still make it and get support and provide inspiration and receive your own inspiration and keep things going? It's, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. This is a wonderful conversation. You've given so much advice already, but if you could think of one more thing, one more piece of advice for uh, an aspiring musician, what advice would you give that person? I would tell them to continue to master your craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to share another quote, and uh, this is from Carl Polnack, and he was a he's a retired professor from Ithaca College. He had the opportunity to talk a lot with parents and students, and this is a quote that he gave in a speech to incoming students. And he said, if we were a medical school and you were here as a med student practicing appendectomies, you'd take your work very seriously because you would imagine that some night at 2 a.m. someone is going to waltz into your emergency room and you're going to have to save their life. Well, my friends, someday at 8 p.m. someone is going to walk into your concert hall and bring a mind that is confused, a heart that is overwhelmed, a soul that is weary, Whether they go out whole again will depend partly on how well you do your craft. You're not here to become an entertainer, and you don't have to sell yourself. The truth is you don't have anything to sell. Being a musician isn't about dispensing a product like selling used cars. I'm not an entertainer. I'm a lot closer to a paramedic, a firefighter, a rescue worker. You're here to become a sort of therapist for the human soul, a spiritual version of a chiropractor physical therapist, someone who works with our insides to see if they can get things to line up, to see if we can come into harmony with ourselves and be healthy and happy and well. If there is a future wave of wellness on this planet, of harmony, of peace, of an end to war, of mutual understanding, of equality, of fairness, I don't expect it will come from a government, a military force, or a corporation. If there is a future of peace for humankind, if there is to be an understanding of how these invisible internal things should fit together, I expect it will come from the artists because that's what we do. So master your craft is what I would say. Uh, do what you do because it's important. Uh, if, if it's teaching, be the teacher that inspires the next generation. Uh, I love the quote, we stand on the shoulders of our teachers, and some of our teachers were giants, and some of them were not so tall. Uh, and be, be that giant of a teacher, um, because it's, it's important what we do. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. You're welcome. Thank you. You are just wonderful. Oh, it's so good to see you again. Um, yeah. Well, I want to let you put a little plug in, because you are an arranger. You're on YouTube. Where can people find you and find your music? Yeah, brandonbascom.com. My hymn arrangement book came out with Alfred Music. You can order it from me at brandonbascom.com forward slash shop, or you can get it at any music store that carries Alfred uh, Alfred Publishers uh, publications. So yeah, I'm I'm on Instagram, brandonbascommusic. That's where I post a lot of my, my, my content, but yeah. That's great. And they're beautiful arrangements. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, I love them. I do. I love them. Well, thank you so much for being here. I have so enjoyed your outlook 
on all of this on uh, competitions and hearing your stories and your quotes. And I have two new books that I've got to read now. And yeah, <laughs> here's fantastic. a third one. Oh yeah, let's see it. Mon Monsters and Angels: Surviving a Career in Music, also by Seymour <laughs> Bernstein. A lot of anecdotal stories there. <laughs> okay, I will definitely put links to all of those books in our show notes so everyone can go and read those so they, they can all survive. <laughs> so they can all survive a life in music. Yeah. Well, Dr. Brandon Bascom, you are wonderful. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me in my conversation with pianist and arranger, Dr. Brandon Bascom. If you are as inspired by his outlook on music, society, and competition as I was, please share this episode with friends, family, or students that may benefit from it. Another great way to help other people find the show is by leaving a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. In about a week, we'll have the video version of this conversation up on our Musicians vs. the World YouTube channel, but there are plenty of other interviews you can watch there in the meantime. And while you're on YouTube, be sure to look up Dr. Bascom's channel to hear his beautiful arrangements and enjoy his performances. You can also learn more about him and order the sheet music to his arrangements on his website, brandonbascom.com. I will have links to those things as well as to the books and resources mentioned in this interview in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians versus the world is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. And of course, a very special thank you to Dr. Brandon Bascom for sharing his time, his experiences, and his expertise with us today. In today's episode, you've heard excerpts from The Grazer Fantasy in C Major by Franz Schubert performed by Dr. Bascom and shared here with permission. Join us next time where we'll be diving into the world of neurodiversity and classical musicians. I'll be joined by three researchers who live with and have studied attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Together we will discuss the struggles, the strategies, and the triumphs of musicians living with ADHD. I hope you will join us again in that very enlightening conversation. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have any questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians that you'd like to share, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at infofrostedlens.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day. <laughs>